Daniel chapter 2, of course, is where we're at. And before we dive into the dream and exactly what it was and what the dream meant, I do just want to give you kind of a sneak peek, sneak peek so that we can look at this and know up front what we're dealing with. And what will be afforded today in Daniel 2 is an opportunity really to walk down the halls of history and to see what has happened and what has unfolded in really human history. And at the very end of that hall, we'll, we'll have a window that we'll be able to peer off into the distance and see a few things that are yet future for us that we can look forward to and that we can take comfort in. And for us, the vast majority of this passage of Scripture today is going to be in the rearview mirror. The vast majority has already happened, but Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are seeing this dream and this interpretation through the windshield. It's all future for them. It's all yet to happen for them, and they marvel at it. And when we're done with this passage of Scripture, we're going to find that God has His hand on history, that history truly is His story, that He knows what He's doing it, and He is doing it. We're going to find today that we can rest and trust in God. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the first half or maybe 60% of this message unpacking this dream and looking at here's what it is, here's what it means, here's what the interpretation is. And then we're going to spend the latter half applying the dream and saying, okay, that's great for Daniel, that's great for Nebuchadnezzar, but what does that mean for us? How does this dream have a bearing on our lives? How does it have a bearing on our week this week? What does that mean for us as modern Americans? So I would say this, stay with me. The first half of this is going to be very historical. It's also going to be a little bit technical, but we're going to walk through this dream and find out what it means. And what we'll find is this. The notes of sovereignty are going to play this song over and over and over and over again. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. So look at verse number 31 with me. We'll find first the dream recovered. So Daniel's going to give Nebuchadnezzar what this dream is. He's not going to interpret it yet, but he's going to say, here is what the dream was. And honestly, it's a little bit weird. It's, it's, a, it's a strange dream, honestly, but let's, let's see what this is. Look in verse number 31. Daniel says, Thou, O King Nebuchadnezzar, sawest, and behold, a great image, and this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this image that is great, it's big, it's huge, it's massive, it's vast, it is very bright, the, ex- the brightness is excellent, and it says at the end of the verse that the form of it was terrible. It inspired terror or fear or anxiety or consternation inside of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And this, this dream scared him, honestly. He's very troubled at it. He's very perplexed at it that he sees this image that is so huge and so big. And Daniel describes this image. He says in verse number 32, The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. So he says here is this image that is all of these precious metals, starting with gold and then silver and then brass and iron, then iron with clay at the very bottom. And here is, it's, it's, these are all these kind of separate sections moving down this image. And these metals, of course, are valuable. They're precious stones, certainly. But as you move down the image, the, the metals get stronger, actually, from gold to silver, silver to brass, brass to iron. They get stronger and stronger. But they also, they get lighter weight as they go down. This image is extremely top-heavy. I did a a small bit of research about the specific gravitational value. I'm not big in specific gravitational values, but here's what the Internet told me. 
Gold, the gravitational value is approximately 19. Silver is 10. Brass is 8.6. Iron is 7.8. Look in verse number 34. Thou sawest till a stone that was cut without hand. So here's this stone that is not man-made. We can call it an asteroid. We can call it whatever we want. But this non-man-made stone, which smote the image on his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. But not just the feet did it break in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. So this image was so utterly destroyed that it became almost like fine dust, the chaff of the th- summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away. That this, enti- this great, huge, massive image is broken down and just blown away, off into the distance, it's gone, no longer to be seen, but that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now that's a strange dream. I've had some weird dreams in my day, but I've never had one quite like that. What in the world does that mean? What does, what does this dream of this image and these metals and this stone growing into a mountain and filling the earth, how does, that, how does that weigh in on Daniel's life? How does that weigh in on, on Nebuchadnezzar's life? I want to give you what this means. And Daniel gives us what this means. He gives us not just the dream recovered, but he's going to give us the dream revealed. And he's going to say, here is what this means. And to give you a sneak peek, this dream represents the world empires in succeeding stages starting with Babylon and moving down through the kingdoms of the earth that are going to rule the earth. And everything from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ is briefly comprehended, is briefly represented inside of this dream here. So let's, let's jump into it. Verse number 36. We're going to find this verse. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Verse 37. Thou, O king, so Nebuchadnezzar, thou art a king of kings, For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar that you're a king of kings, and Nebuchadnezzar would agree with this. Nebuchadnezzar is the world ruler. All of the known world is being ruled by Nebuchadnezzar at this point in time, from the entire Fertile Crescent, from Egypt all the way along the Mediterranean coast, all the way down into the Persian Gulf. Everything is being ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. He has conquered anyone that is to conquer. He's conquered them. He's done it. He's been there. He has the t-shirt. He is ruling everyone. And Nebuchadnezzar is a king of kings. But Daniel takes a moment just to say, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a king of kings, but your glory and your power and your strength is coming from God. This is not in and of you. This is not because of you. This is because of God. And Daniel breathes heavy into what even the New Testament tells us. Romans 13 tells us that every soul, all of us, should be subject into the higher powers. But then then Paul writes this, For there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Acts 17 says that God made of one blood all the nations of the men for to dwell on the face of the earth. And God determined the times before appointed, and God determined the bounds of their habitation. That God ordains the rulers. God sets up the boundaries of the nations. That God, at the end of the day, is in control of all of this. We are in a very heavy political season right now. 
Every four years, we get the Summer Olympics, we get Michael Phelps, and then we get whoever our candidates are that we get to vote for, and we get a heavy political season. But right now, honestly, there's a lot of room for consternation. There's a lot of room for concern in our political climate right now. The, and I think that even statistics bear this out, the unfavorable ratings for our two candidates right now are literally historical and off the charts. And maybe you're completely at peace with a candidate and good for you, great, I'm glad that you are. But most Americans just aren't right now. Many Americans are just, they just don't feel that great about all the options. And, and whether it's one of those two or maybe you're even Green Party or Libertarian Party, whatever political party you are, which those are third party, but there's two of them, so I'm not sure you have two third parties. But that's besides the point. We're in a very heavy political seat. We need to come up with like, you know, sub-party or third and fourth party. I don't know what we want to do. But we're in a political season right now. And if we're not careful, we can get real worked up about what's going on in our nation. And I am for you doing your civic duty. I'm for you voting your conscience. I'm for you being involved. Do all of that. Even if you want to get a bumper sticker or a yard sign, two thumbs up, great, have at it. But at the end of the day, the powers that be are ordained of God. That God is in control and God is ruling and God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. God is not caught off guard by some black swan political candidate who's coming in out of nowhere and he's up in heaven wringing his hand saying, I just wasn't planning for this. God's not on anxiety medication. He's not stressed out. He's not worried. He's not surprised by what's happening in America or in Russia or in Syria or anywhere else. God is ruling. God is in control. He ordains the powers. He sets up the boundaries of nations. And we're going to see in Daniel 2 that this was true in Daniel's day and age. This was true in 600, 500, 400, 300, 200 B.C. This has also been true all throughout history. That God is in control. And we can take a big, big sigh and just, just let it out. We can rest in God. We can trust in God. That he is in control and he knows what he's doing. And that's what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you're a king of kings, but that's because of God. God did this. God set this up. But then he goes on to explain. He says in, uh, in verse number 38, And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the heaven, hath he given unto thy hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. So a bit of hyperbole. But Daniel says, anywhere that men are, anywhere that beasts are, you're ruling it. You are over the world. You are, you are the world's potentate, Nebuchadnezzar. You're ruling. Then he says at the end of the verse, thou art this head of gold. So he makes it very clear. The top, the top of the image, the gold, is Nebuchadnezzar. It's Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar represents this kingdom. And, and gold is very fitting. The Babylonians, and especially King Nebuchadnezzar, were preoccupied with gold. They had this affinity or this particular, uh, this particular affection for gold for whatever reason. And it's been written that the Babylonian kingdom was a kingdom of gold. Isaiah 14 actually says that. King Nebuchadnezzar desired to have a golden throne inside of a golden kingdom. And they loved gold. There are uh, ancient historians who, who write of Babylon and just that everything was gold. There were statues of gold. There were instruments of gold. There were buildings of gold. We're going to see next week in chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image in the plain of Dura 
of pure gold, and the image is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, like a big old french fry or something. He sets up this image that's massive, but it's pure gold. And the Babylonians loved gold. Their, their city was a city of gold. And God says, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You are the head of gold. But then he moves on, and he says this in verse 39. He says, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. So that's a very brief description. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us in the dream that this kingdom is represented by silver, the chest and the arms of silver, which is representative of the Medo-Persian Empire. And we know this for three reasons. Number one is we can look in the rearview mirror and we see that the Medes and the Persians ruled after Babylon. So that's easy. They ruled after them. Number two is just the image itself. And take great comfort in how descriptive Daniel is being here. He goes from this solidarity of gold, this head of gold, and he moves into a chest in solidarity, but split into two arms. And the Medes and the Persians were two nations that joined together to rule together. And the Medes and the Persians were preoccupied with silver. They created a vast taxation system for the entire world, and they required that your taxes be paid in silver. And they filled their coffers with tons and tons and tons and tons of silver. And at the end of the empire, they used that silver, Xerxes used that silver to finance his war against the Greeks. But the, the image of silver, this kingdom, and the Bible says it's inferior to thee, probably referring to it's, it's just a little further down the statue, that after you is coming this, this kingdom, the Medes and the Persians of silver, and then in the end of verse 39, and after that another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the whole earth. So here is this third kingdom. We would know now, once again, looking in the rearview mirror, this is the Greeks. This is Alexander the Great. This is their kingdom. And, and not just, I love what Daniel's doing. Solidarity of Babylon into the Medes and Persians that are together, but they're separate. Then into the belly, singular, into the thighs of brass. And that was the Greek empire. It was ruled by Alexander the Great, and he, he conquered the world, and he conquered it quickly. But in his 30s, he dies, and the kingdom is divided amongst four generals and amongst two regions. You go from this singular king into two regions, Egypt and Syria, and Daniel is describing that in an image, and he uses brass. If you were to meet, you know, in, in uh, 450 B.C., a Persian warrior, let's just say you're walking down the street, and a Persian warrior came to attack you, he would have been, he would have had a turban, he would have had some long sleeves, some long pants, very lightweight, maybe a small wooden shield, very ninja-esque type of warrior. But if you fast forward, you know, a hundred years and you were to meet a Greek warrior, you would find a warrior with a helmet of brass and a breastplate of brass and a shield of brass and leg, leg guards and arm guards of brass and a weapon of brass that hundreds of years prior to this, Daniel is saying, here's this kingdom, here's how it's going to flow out, and here's the metal that they're going to use primarily inside of their kingdom to defeat the known world. Then he says this in verse number 40. He lays out the fourth empire. He says in verse 40, the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, shall be strong as iron. And listen to this description. This is scary. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. That is a very staunch, strong description of a kingdom. And he says this is representative of iron. And Rome comes out of nowhere to take the world by storm. 
into literally, we use the phrase, rule with an iron rod. That was the Romans. They were known, yes, for their very uh, wise approach to the political system. They were known for the Roman uh, roads that they built. They were known for many things. But the one thing, the primary thing Rome was known for was you didn't trifle with them. You did not mess with a Roman centurion. You did not mess with a Roman ruler because they would put you down and they would put you down in a heartbeat. There, there was no messing around with Rome. The Caesars ruled and they ruled with an iron rod. That It said that their legions, the Roman legions, would stamp the enemy out with an iron heel. And Rome used iron greatly inside of their weaponry, inside of their siege warfare, to rule and to rule very, very well. Then Daniel says this in verse 41. That's the hall of history, basically, in a nutshell. But now he's going to give us this window that we can kind of look even for us, future, off in the distance and see what is one day coming. Look in verse 41. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Now I'll stop right there for a moment. It's going to be divided amongst the toes. Now most feet have five toes. Not all feet. I've met someone who had six toes. I had a friend growing up who cut off a toe accidentally and uh, had four toes. But most of us have five toes, right? Two feet, five toes, we got ten toes. The Bible will tell us in other places, specifically Daniel 7, that this kingdom is referred to or referenced often that it is divided into ten separate parts, that there's going to be a coalition of ten different nations that join together in what some have called a revitalized Rome that's part iron but part clay that come together. So let's continue reading this verse in the middle. But there shall be in it, verse 41, of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. 42. And as the toes of the feet were part iron and part of clay, so this kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as the iron that is not mixed with clay. Now, I honestly do not have time to unpack those three verses. We could spend three weeks on those three verses and all the different allusions to it in the Bible. But several places in Daniel, especially in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is is a, a kind of twin prophecy to Daniel 2. He gives the same world kingdoms. He gives the same outlay of how this is going to happen, but he gives it in different uh, imagery. He gives it in terms of, of animals. He says that Babylon is this, is this lion with eagle's wings and that the Medes and Persians are a bear and one side's raised more than the other. And he, he lays all this out. But in Daniel 7, he spends a great deal of time talking about this kingdom. In Thessalonians, in Revelation, especially Revelation 13, what we find when we take the entirety of the Bible to put it in a nutshell for you is that there is coming a day where there will be ten nations that join together as a coalition that will step onto the stage of the world, they will rule the world, and they will create peace. Out of those ten nations, the Antichrist will rise, and then after that, the kingdom of God will be ushered in in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's a lot of prophecy in a really, really brief paragraph right there. But that's what you find. And, And we see this kingdom of Christ in verse 44. Verse 44, In the days of these kings... Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? So this is the rock that smote these kingdoms of man. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, 
the great God hath made known unto the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. So Daniel is referencing this kingdom, and honestly, this kingdom that's going to come and replace all man-made kingdoms and fill the entire earth is a point of Scripture often. The Bible often alludes for this. To give you a couple examples of that, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Some of you have said this probably hundreds or thousands of times in your, in your church upbringing. Hallowed be thy name. May thy kingdom come. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's that talking about? It's talking about this. It's talking about the kingdom that is one day to come. Jesus said of himself that he was the rock and that he was going to come and he was going to usher in this kingdom. I want you to see that. Hold your place in Daniel 2, but go to Mark 14. This is the uh, evening or the, or the early morning of Jesus' trial before his crucifixion. And the high priest is going to ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the Christ? Like, tell us, point blank, are you the Christ? And Jesus is going to tell him that he's the son of man. Now, that son of man is, is a different term, but it refers to this stone. It's used later on in Daniel to talk about the same thing. The son of man that will come in great power and glory and will usher in this kingdom that will replace all man-made kingdoms. And look at, uh, look at Mark 14, the end of the chapter, verse number 61. But he, Jesus, held his peace and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And here's Jesus' answer. I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now the high priest knows what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am that rock that smote the image. I am going to usher in a kingdom. And we know the high priest knows this because look at his reaction to that. It's not just, hey, I was, I was born of a woman. I'm a son of man. He knows what he's saying. Verse 63. When Jesus says that, the high priest rent his clothes and saith, what need we any further witnesses? Why do we need any false witnesses? Why do we need to accuse him any further? He just said that he's the Messiah, that he's going to usher in the kingdom, that he's going to do this. Verse 64. Ye have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. They understood what Jesus was saying. They understood that Jesus was saying, I am the one that's going to replace all man-made kingdoms. My kingdom will be eternal. It will last forever. I'm going to be the one that's going to usher it in. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And they understand. And Daniel understands in this day and age that this is referring to the Son of Man. This is referring to Messiah that will one day replace all man-made kingdoms. Okay, so we just covered a lot of ground. That was relatively historical, relatively technical. Let's look at the end of the chapter here, verse 46. I want us to see this. It kind of switches back to a historical narrative. We see that the dream is rewarded. Look in 46. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered and said... Daniel, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then 
The king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts. You think Oprah gives great gifts on her show sometimes and she gives away cars? That's nothing compared to the, the king who ruled on a throne of gold and the kingdom of gold. I don't know what Daniel got, but he got something real good. I can guarantee you that. Great gifts. And the king makes Daniel a ruler over the whole province of Babylon. So here's little old Daniel, captive, now second in command in all of Babylon. And the chief governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And I'm going to make you over all the wise men. And Daniel asked one request. He asked this of the king. Daniel requested of the king and said, Can you set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon? Daniel says, Could you promote my buddies with me? Could they get a raise too? And the Bible says that Daniel sat in the gate of the king. You come to the end of the chapter, and you, you see this big, lengthy chapter in the Bible on Nebuchadnezzar, and he has this dream, and he's worried, and he calls everybody in, and off with their heads, and he's going to kill them, and Daniel prays, and Daniel's going to die, and God gives this dream, and here's the image, and the goal, and you come to all of it at the end, and you see God's using this. It's, I mean, it's almost as if we get to the end here, and we see that God actually is sovereign through chaos. It's almost as if we get to the end, and we find out, oh, you know what? God knew what he was doing, and he was doing it. God was using this to promote Daniel, to promote his friends, and to put Daniel in the orbit of the king and to give him a voice and an audience with the king. So there it is. There's, there's a dream. It's recovered. It's revealed. Daniel's rewarded. But how in the world does that apply to your heart and my heart and our lives? How in the world does this dream have a bearing on us as modern Americans, as Pennsylvanians, 2016, fast forward thousands of years, how could this possibly speak into our lives? And here's what, here's what I want to do for the last portion of this sermon. So I want to give you the dream related. I want to tell you how this does relate to your life. How this does have a bearing on your life. And honestly, I could give you a dozen ways. I don't have time for that. So I just picked my, my favorite three. So I'm going to give you three. But here are three ways that this, this dream has a deep and a lasting impact on our hearts and our minds and our lives. First is this. There are no accidents with God. There are zero. <clears throat> there are no accidents with God. I read recently of a cowboy who applied for uh, term life insurance. And those of you that have applied for 20 or 30, whatever term life insurance, you know how that goes. You have to go to the doctor. They have to do a physical. They have to draw blood, make sure that you have good cholesterol and your white blood cell count isn't too high and all that sort of stuff. And then many times after that, you'll have some sort of oral examination or some quiz with the insurance agent. So the cowboy had gone through his, through his physical and he, he came back and the insurance agent was giving him this quiz. And the agent asked him, have you ever been in any accidents? And to the agent's surprise, the cowboy responded, oh, no, never. And he was a bit taken back, thinking this rough, rough, rugged cowboy, you know, putting posts in on the ranch or riding bulls or broncos. Like, certainly he's been in an accident. So he kind of followed up and said, you mean to tell me you've never been hurt? You've never been injured? And the cowboy said, oh, yeah, I've been hurt plenty of times. 1998, a rattlesnake bit right through my boot, got me good. 2004, a bronco kicked me right in my arm, broke it. 2012, a Brahma bull kicked me off, broke my leg. I've been hurt lots of times. The agent said, you, you wouldn't call those accidents? And the cowboy said, no. Those animals meant to do it every single time. 
when we say that there's no accidents with God, we mean that he knows what he's doing and he's doing it. He's doing it on purpose. He's, he's not acting on the fly. God is not adjusting to what we do and, oh, they're going to do this. Okay, I can counter this. Like it's some chess game with the humans here on earth. That's not, there are no accidents. There are no, God has never one time said, whoops, uh-oh, whoopsie-daisy. He's never done it. There, there are no accidents. God is acting. He's acting on purpose. This is another way to say God is sovereign. He's ruling. He's in control. And if you would just latch onto this truth, which is a profound truth. Honestly, it's the foundation of theology. This is the center of gravity. This is the sun around which all lesser orbs go around. This is, this is 101 for theology, that God's in control. He's sovereign. And if we would take that truth and put it in our hearts, it would cause a peace and a rest and a just sit back and relax to know that God knows what he's doing and he's doing it. That I can take, well, well, what about my family? Well, what about those boys in the hospital? Well, what about our church? Well, what about my job? And what about my finances and my kids and this and that? God is in control. God knows what he's doing. He's doing it. He is ruling. He is not caught off guard. He does not have a headache. He's not surprised by your life. There are no accidents with God. And, and that is on every level, from the micro to the macro and anywhere in between, God is ruling. And I've said that like every sermon in Daniel. If you've been coming on Sunday nights, you're probably thinking like, you've already said this. Like last sermon <clears throat> and the sermon before that and the sermon before that and the sermon. I know. That's the title of our series, Sovereign Through Chaos. And we're going to continue to say it because Daniel continues to say it. God is in control. God knows what he's doing. There are no accidents. <clears throat> Secondly, I'd say this. What does this teach us? It teaches us that serving God faithfully and speaking for God truthfully turns others to him. Think about Daniel. Daniel gets this dream. He gets this interpretation. And he, he tells the king it. But Daniel includes in the dream and, and in the interpretation some really big truths that affect Nebuchadnezzar profoundly. Daniel knows God is sovereign, but Nebuchadnezzar does not know this. Daniel knows that God is in control. He has, he has been inside of Jewish school. He's learned the Torah. He's learned the law. He's had this theology. But Nebuchadnezzar has never been introduced to this. Nebuchadnezzar considers himself to be the primary force of the universe. That I am the world ruler. And Daniel is going to take Nebuchadnezzar and say, yes, you're a king of kings, but that's not because you are cunning. That's not because you're wise. That's not because you're smart. That's not because you're a great military tactician. It's none of that. That's because of God. And Daniel is going to introduce a truth bomb to Nebuchadnezzar's life that it really could blow up in his face and get him killed. Look in verse, we, we referenced this earlier, but look in verse 37 of chapter 2. This is what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 37, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. So great. I'm sure that tickled Nebuchadnezzar's ears. I'm sure he loved it. But why are you a king of kings? For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom and power and strength and glory. Daniel is taking Nebuchadnezzar's self-confidence. He's sticking a stick of dynamite in there called God's sovereignty, and he's going to blow it to pieces. 
And this is the reaction that Nebuchadnezzar has to the end of this. Look at verse 47. Go 10 verses forward. Daniel lays the truth bomb down in verse 47. Nebuchadnezzar says, He answered unto Daniel, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods. And don't miss this next phrase. And a Lord of kings. Nebuchadnezzar says, For the first time I'm seeing that it's not me ruling kings. Yes, it is, but there's someone above me. Nebuchadnezzar is starting to see that he's not at the top of the pyramid. That he is a creature and God is a creator and that there is someone above him. But Daniel didn't shy away from this truth that honestly probably shocked Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel did not shy away from introducing Nebuchadnezzar to a hard truth to learn that you are not in control of all this, Nebuchadnezzar. You are not numero uno. There is a God and he is above you and you need to accept that. And in our lives, we should take a lesson from the pages of Daniel and learn that we should be able to introduce people to the truth by serving God faithfully and speaking truthfully. And when we do that, people are drawn to him. People are turned to him because of it. And I understand that in our day and age, in our modern society, that this is increasingly tough. I understand that the longer we live, the more that our Christian values and our way of processing information becomes less and less prevalent and becomes more and more attacked and criticized. I get that. But don't shy away from the opportunities that God puts in your life to stand for Him and to speak the truth in love. When the pressure is turned up at work and you're supposed to be just like everybody else and you're supposed to go along with the flow and you're supposed to just fit in but you know that's against what the Bible says, take the opportunity to serve God faithfully, to speak for Him truthfully and to say, no, I don't do that or this is what the Bible says and do it in love. When you are introduced at your public school PTO to an opportunity to stand for God, to speak for Him, do it. Talk to the parents, talk to the teachers, talk to the administrators and, and seize the moment and seize the opportunity to talk for God when you know that your family won't understand and they're not going to get it and they don't know why you do this or why you don't do this or why you're going to go to church even though it's Christmas morning or whatever the case may be. Take the, take the time, take the opportunity, seize the moment to serve God faithfully and to speak for Him truthfully and to stand up and say, no, this is what I believe and this is why. Daniel does that. And what you find is that it turns Nebuchadnezzar to God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't become a profound believer or become a Jewish or Christian at this exact moment. But it does turn him to God. It points his, his gaze, it points his direction more to God. And you'll find that you may not always find that that person gets saved that day or that week or that month or that year or that they really appreciate what you said or that they come to church with you the following Sunday, but it will turn them to God. When you serve God faithfully and you speak truthfully, it has this profound effect of pointing people to Jesus. And don't shy away from those opportunities when they're introduced to your life. Third and lastly, here's a lesson that we can learn. Even in times of chastisement, God does not desire to keep his children at arm's length. You say, that sounds like a strange lesson. It does a little bit. Even in times of chastisement, God does not desire to keep his children at arm's length. You say, what do you mean? I used to ask myself, why in the world is this portion of Daniel in chapter 2? If you know anything about the book of Daniel, you have six chapters of historical narrative. They're the Bible stories we tell our kids. 
There's Daniel stood for God. He took a stand and God rewarded him. Chapter 1. Chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace. Uh, Chapter 5. The lion's den. These are what we riddle our children's books with and our curriculum with. But right in the middle of that is chapter 2. This dream and this image and and prophecy. But the back half of the book is prophecy. And I used to think, why not put prophecy of 2 just in the back portion of the book why here in the middle of the historical narrative i mean i don't know about you i've never told that story to to brennan my son now maybe you were ultra spiritual parent and you had bible story time and you talked about daniel 2 the image the gold the world kingdoms and and you had this conversation with your kids probably not you probably just went to chapter three and talked about the fiery furnace so why is this prophecy stuck right in the middle of the historical narrative wouldn't it just fit better at the end Here's why. And this is opinion. The Bible doesn't say here's why. This is my opinion. Daniel and the Jews have had Jerusalem as a stronghold for more than 400 years. And they have taken great solace in the fact that Jerusalem is not conquered. Their nation is still intact. God is still ruling. And they still have their own kingdom. They're a world power. And that's gone. Nebuchadnezzar just defeated them. And no longer is the king reigning on his own under God, now Nebuchadnezzar is ruling that king. Now they're paying tribute to Babylon. Everything that the Jews hold near and dear is about to be demolished before their very eyes in the years to come. And and this is a time of great chastisement for the Jews. And God told them this was going to happen, so they shouldn't be surprised. But this is a time of punishment, a time of learning, a time of rebuke for the Jews. But early on, right after this happens... God introduces to Daniel and to the Jews a prophecy. And the prophecy screams, I'm still in control. I still know what I'm doing. I still have a plan. And I, I believe that if Daniel or if the Jews would not have gotten this prophecy early on, that they would have been very discouraged, very disheartened, maybe even step back and say, does God still care about us? Does he still love us? Is there still a plan for us? Is there something still for us to encounter here? But God introduces this prophecy early on in Daniel to let them know, yes, it's punishment. Yes, it's chastisement. But this is a time where you're still, I'm not keeping you at arm's length. I still have a plan. This is what Hebrews tells us in the New Testament for us as Christians. Hebrews 12. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? What a lesson that chastisement sometimes and punishment sometimes and rebuke sometimes from God is indicative of a loving relationship. It is, it is not counteracted. It shows that God's loved us. And even in those times, you may be in a time right now where you feel like, you know what? I messed up. I blew it. God is working in my heart. I know, I know that I'm being spanked by God at the moment. Even in those moments, God does not desire to have a, get away from me, my child. Don't look at me. I'm going to keep you at arm's length. Even in those moments, he wants us to know he loves us. He wants to restore the relationship. He wants to make it whole again. The Bible says in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Even in those moments of chastisement, that God still has a plan and God still loves you and God still wants what's best for you and God's still ruling even in your life. And God tells the Jews, look, I know 
that this is, this is something that is hard for you. I know this is chastisement. But at the same time, I still love you. And I still have a plan for you. In conclusion, I'll, I'll use this illustration. William Cullen Bryant walked across the field in uh, western Massachusetts on a cold December day. And William Cullen Bryant, if you don't know who he is, is arguably the greatest American poet to ever lived. And uh, many of the American authors and poets uh, patterned his poetic style and admired his poetic style. Authors like uh, Longfellow and Edgar Allan Poe and Walt Whitman and Robert Frost. And I don't know the last time you've been in an English or, or American literature class, but you probably heard some of those names years ago. But Poe, uh, or um, Bryant that day, was walking across the field in uh, western Massachusetts. And he said, he writes in his diary, that he was a bit lonely, he was a bit sad, he was even a bit overwhelmed with, with life. And he saw off in the distance a wild duck fly across the horizon, making its way south for a more proper home. And Brian stopped and, and he thought about that and he went home that night and he penned his famous poem to a waterfowl. Matthew Arnold called this poem the most perfect brief poem in the language. And it's only 89 stanzas. I'm not going to read it to you, but I do want to read you the last two stanzas of his poem and what this duck flying south to a warm home taught this man. Here's what he says. He says to the waterfowl, Thou art gone. The abyss of heaven has swallowed up thy form. Yet on my heart deeply has sunk the lesson thou hast given and shall not soon depart. He says, Look, little bird, you flew away into the horizon. You are gone. But you taught me something. And it sunk deep into my heart. And I'm not going to forget it anytime soon. And here is what the bird taught him. He taught him this. He who from zone to zone guides through the boundless sky thy certain flight in the long way that I must trace alone will lead my steps aright. He says, what this teaches me is that the same God who guides that duck somehow, some way south to a warm home is the same God that will guide me in the path that I'm tracing alone. He's the same God that's going to guide my steps aright. And can I say from the micro level of God guiding a bird south for winter, all the way to the macro level of God setting up kings and kingdoms and nations and Babylon and Greek and, and Romans and the Persians, and somewhere in between, you, me, your family, your job, your church, your finances, God is in control. He guides it. He knows what he's doing, and God is doing it.